0: The following is a paid program. The views expressed are not necessarily those of the management or
1: ownership of KSTPAM 1500 ESPN.
2: This is the place to talk about everything related to the home, buying or selling real estate, financing and improvements that can help increase your home's value. This is Minnesota Home Talk on Score North. Here's your host, Jason Walgrave.
0: Good morning and welcome to Minnesota Home Talk here. I'm uh, your host, Mike Overson, with Luminate Home Loans this morning. Uh, Jason is—I uh, think he's—I think he's running in track meet. Is what he said. Told he's, me he's going to do it himself. I think he's him. running, sweet, or maybe it's his sons. I can't remember one <laughs> of the two. <laughs> or maybe maybe he's running against his sons in the track meet. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure. I think I think Joseph could probably beat him in a race now.
2: Is he that quick? You think so? I still try to race against my kids. It's uh, they're getting close, but
0: I don't, I don't, I don't think it's because Joseph is that quick. I think Jason's that oh, okay, slow. Okay, then, then <laughs> that's that's where I'm going with this one. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. Anywho,
0: <laughs> so Jason is not with us, but uh, in his place, we brought on another Walgrave uh, to talk uh, some tax stuff with us. So we have Jonathan Walgrave here with ICS Tax LLC in with us. Um, we're going to be talking about short term versus long term rentals. Uh, and Jonathan is the perfect fit for this because I know that he has owned a long-term rental for several years, and uh, one of his specialties, one of his specialties is uh, short-term rentals, and he actually does uh, CPA work for really any income-producing property that's out there. So whether it's a single-family short-term rental or all the way up to, you know, commercial and apartment buildings, um, that's what he does. So we're going to talk about the pros and cons of short-term versus long-term rentals, and then just some of his own experiences with uh, those pros and cons as well and some of the tax benefits that might come along with them. As always, we got the phone lines open. Uh, call in or text in this morning with any question dealing with mortgages or real estate or any sort of tax question, too, uh, dealing around real estate, and we'll, we will uh, answer those questions live on air. The call-in line is 651 647 two nine one zero again six five one six four seven two nine one zero and you can text in your questions too to 763 again seven six three four four three five six six four we're gonna be giving away uh, we're gonna be giving away a prize for the best question of the morning. So the person with the best question of the morning is going to win uh, what do we got? Four St. Saint Paul Saints tickets,
1: Evan? Uh, yeah, four St. Saint Paul Saints tickets.
0: Four St. Saint Paul Saints tickets is the giveaway this morning to the best question. So, again, you can call in at 651-647-2910, or you can test, text us uh, your questions at 763-443-5664. See how I remember that one, Evan? Yeah. Top of my head? <laughs> took a while. <laughs> We've only had those numbers now for how long? A year? A year.
1: Have we been in here a year now? Oh, I think so. Yeah.
0: I think at least a year. the, the So the thing is, is that so we had a different number when we were in the other studio. Yeah. So that number, after nine years, got ingrained in our head. So when we moved to this studio and it was a different number, Jason and I messed it up every single time. Evan was correcting us for the first, well, good 12 months probably. Well,
2: that's probably why some of my questions a year ago they weren't getting answered. Yeah, <laughs> right you just ignoring we, me. Don't, we don't answer questions on yeah.
0: this
1: show. That's the real secret.
0: We purposely give the wrong number so we don't have to answer questions yeah. live because we, we don't know what questions. you're talking about.
1: We only take questions from a few specific textures. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So phone line, again, is open 651-647-2910 and the text line 763-443-5664. Okay, so two main topics today. We're going to talk about interest rates. Uh where we think they're going, what happened this week, and the differences between the loan programs. And the other nice thing about having Jonathan in here is he's also a client of ours um, who recently we had a closing with, um, and he saw the ups and the downs of interest rates and how you know the conventional loans differ from the jumbo loans uh, and all this other stuff here. So we're going to dive right into that now. So as far as interest rates go, you have four really main categories, right? you got your conventional loans, you have FHA, you have VA, and then you have jumbo loans. Okay, so conventional loan, I would say probably 80% of the loans done out there right now are conventional loans. Um, so a conventional loan amount is anything that fits Fannie and Freddie guidelines. The max loan amount that you can get on a conventional loan is 647200 seven two hundred. So if your loan amount is 647200 seven two hundred or less, um, you can do a conventional loan. Interest rate as of yesterday, which was Friday, um, Ended at 6.125 on a 30 year fixed. Oh boy. So, um, is it the highest that we've seen since uh, last time they were in the sixes? Really, the last time they ever hit the sixes that I can remember was pre crash. Yeah. Was probably 2000, you know, 2006 to 2007 was the last time we had rates in the sixes. Yep. I
2: think, uh-huh. I think I had a 6.25 on our townhouse in 2005.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The highest that I ever remember them hitting was in 2006 at 6.75. And I've been doing this since June of 04. So June of 04 is when I got into the mortgage business. The highest I've ever seen is 6.75. I know that in the early 2000s, they were eight and a half, eight and three quarters roughly, um, you know, and that was just the norm. Uh, but we ended this Friday at 6.125%. Now, an FHA, FHA loan, um, they have a max loan amount of 448500 eight okay? five hundred. And so max loan amount, 448500 eight five hundred. Now, they ended at 5.5%, so 5.5% on Friday. But here's the kicker. The FHA loans and the VA loans now, they all have mandatory discount points you need to pay. Really? So that 5.5%, I can't go any higher and not charge you discount points. That 5.5% is probably going to require you to pay 1% in discount points. So what does that mean? You're paying 1% of your loan amount as an additional closing cost on top of your other closing costs, your appraisal fee and your title fees and things like that. Um, the VA rate, it was also at 5.5% as of yesterday. Same thing, got discount points to pay. So a lot of people are like, well, why Why is that? Um, a lot of interest rate, uh, interest rate uh, where they set them or what they, how they calculate those, where they put them at, um, is based on what they think is going to happen in the future. So everyone on the mortgage side of things is thinking that, hey, recession is coming. If we're not in, the, in it right now, we're definitely nearing it. And what happens with a recession is rates typically go down. Right. So anyone who's going to be doing an FHA loan today at five and a half percent is probably going to refinance that loan sometime in the next 12 to 24 months when recession hits. So that's a short term loan. That's only a 12 to 24 month loan where you're getting interest at five and a half percent. So the only way these investors are like, well, why am I going to throw out four hundred thousand dollars out there? knowing that's just going to be a short term deal. So what they do is they price in the mandatory discount point. Okay, we'll give you five and a half percent, but we're going to get some money up front. And that guarantees that we got some money coming in on this thing, knowing that it's probably going to be refinanced shortly in the future. Interesting. So that's why you see mandatory discount points in FHA. That's why you see it on VA loans, conventional loans, not so much. Um, You still have what's called a par rate where you don't have to pay any discount points to get, but your rate is also higher. Higher. higher, Yep. You get 6.125 versus 5.5 for FHA and VA. So now that brings us to Jumbo. So jumbo loans, uh, that's any loan amount that's over $647,200. So that starts at $647,201. Those rates uh, or those loans typically are not bought and sold on the secondary market. You can do that. There's a secondary market for them. But typically, whoever you're locking with and closing with, they're typically not selling that. They're keeping it on their books, which means that they can kind of make their own rules as far as here's the requirements to be approved for this and blah, blah, blah. That ended 4.875 on a 30 year fixed on Friday, yesterday. So you got conventional at 6.125. You got FHAs and VAs at 5.5, but you got the mandatory discount point to pay. And then you had jumbo at 4.875. <laughs> does that make any sense? Borrow more, pay less? I
1: mean, actually, yes. It does? Yeah,
0: kind of. Okay. What, what's your thought process in that? It's simpler. It's
1: simpler? Yeah, no, no, no. So so okay, so from from a from a really broad perspective, the underwriting guidelines for jumbo loans are more stringent. Yep. So you have a narrow narrower client base and you're doing less volume, and so you have to induce it somehow by saying, Hey, come and do a loan with us. Mm-hmm. Simpler.
0: In, incentivize the, the top tier borrowers. Exactly. Because you're true, because jumbo loans are harder to qualify for. You have to have a higher credit score. You got to have more money for reserves. You got to have uh, um, different credit requirements as far as, okay, I got the score, but you also have then trade line requirements. So you got to have certain amount of trade lines. You got to have one for at least a lot of times 36 months. And then you got to have two more that are at least 24, 12 to 24 months. So you have different
1: guidelines and stuff around those for sure. Um there's also more room in what you can do with the properties, right? Because the Jumbo. underwriting is more is more bank driven rather than federal form driven. Yeah. So
0: that's the other thing too. It's it
1: is a little bit more open on
0: that aspect because there's there's some government involvement and it's the government involvement on this is more of we want to make sure that you're disclosing the correct information to the customer, but not so much as to where the government's gonna be buying this loan, the government's gonna say here's what we want for the requirements. They're like, hey, you you set your own requirements as far as your risk tolerances and your interest rates. We just want to make sure that you have the same disclosure stuff. So you still have to send out a loan estimate. You still have to get CDs signed before closing. You still got to do
1: all that stuff. You just have to comply with all the fair housing type stuff. Basically.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, but jo- so Jonathan just built a house, and, and we just closed on his end loan. And so you kind of saw it through the mix there of we're talking about interest rates and it was like you know last fall they were here and then all of a sudden this spring they're here and this summer they're here and we kind of had the rise in the fall of all this stuff um i mean what do you what do you what do you think about interest rates and kind of from what you saw from the process from start to finish
2: so i think a little bit of uh, a part that i'm trying to think if that's even like how that applies to where we are at with rates but um, more so comes down to probably one-time closes. Yeah. So many people these days are able to do a one-time close before they're even, like, if they're building, um, <clears throat> they're locking that rate before they even start. And then in doing that, that dollar amount of the loan, though, is it's stuck. Like, throughout the whole process, if something starts going over, that's, you know, costs coming out of pocket. We had, in our situation, that opportunity to do that. Um, we decided to not go that route and actually... Uh, didn't expect rates to do anything outrageous. We were thinking maybe a quarter percent. So let's just keep it kind of open book with what the cost might do in this. So at the end of the day, in our case, when, yeah, we ended up adding a whole, you know, a whole bunch of stuff to the house. So we, you know, our original cost kind of became a part of the past. At least, uh, we were able to, anything that we were investing into that house above and beyond the construction loan was able to kind of help us out, um, in ultimately the cash to close. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in that case, if I were to look back and there's no way we would have had the same house if we would have done a one-time close. Sure, we'd have a screaming rate, but we'd probably be out a ton more money just to even you know get into that loan. Yeah. So, I mean, it has been, I remember the first time, I think it was like February, you reached out saying, hey, rates jumped up to 3.75 or something like that while I was, while I was traveling and I'm like, what? I'm like, <laughs> like, what just happened? Like these things were like three or three, two, like this is, this is not good. And then I remember we were thinking, well, they shouldn't go over four, and so, you know, we end up, like, riding it out, and then everybody just gets broadsided in the industry, and they keep going, keep going, keep going, and, you know, you got friends on one side of the table going, oh, you got a lock, they're going to go up, but then you got experts on the other side going, this just can't happen, this is just out of control. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in our case, yeah, we are in a jumbo, and, you know, thankfully we did, uh, you know, you helped find that bank that was, that kind of, like, entered into the game there and yeah, didn't know what they were doing, it seemed like, with offering screaming rate, so locked up and yeah worked out worked out okay in the end yeah I, I i feel it could have been a lot worse but i'm actually pretty happy with how it shook out
0: but you brought you bring up a good point with that one-time close so if you are building a new construction house you do a one-time close so if you start off with the loan amount of let, let's say your original build cost was eight hundred thousand, yep, right that's where initial bid came in at and you're going to do a one-time close and let's say you put a couple hundred down so you're going to do a loan amount of six hundred thousand on that one-time close your loan amount can't change then. Correct. You're at 600,000. So, and now as you go through the build process, if you started at eight and you're thinking, okay, 200,000 out of my pocket, cause maybe you sold a house and you had the equity from that house. So that's where your 200 is coming from. But now it goes and you add stuff or you make changes or there's a cost overrun, there's this, yep. there's that. And let's say you go a hundred grand over well, your loan amount is still stuck stuck at 600,000. You can't say, "Hey, I need another 100 grand exactly. bank on this because, you know, lumber costs more and we want to have nicer this or better that. You're coming on that 100 grand out of pocket." Yep. Is what you're doing. And so so there's there's definitely advantages and disadvantages to either the two-time close or the one-time close. Yep. Um but yeah, it's just it's just interesting on you know where where we started, you know the process <laughs> where rates were starting at,' Because I think it was like three and a quarter, I think if we're like like last October, I think it was yeah, around that, yeah, yeah, you know, and to where we ended, I think you ended at what four four, four and four a four and a half, yeah, four yeah, and a half, yeah. yeah, so it ended up turning out you know not too bad for you, but yeah it's it's a little crazy here, I mean looking down the road here, um again, it kind of goes back to the whole FHA vA thing and why we see mandatory discount points on that. Everyone is thinking anyone who's doing a loan this year in 2022, basically from March of 2022, moving forward, all these home loans, they're all getting refinanced in the next 12 to 24 months Yeah, because the recession that's coming, what happens with recession, interest rates go down, they're all getting refinanced. So these investors now are pricing that into everything saying, okay, this is going to be a short-term loan. Let's grab some money up front in the form of a discount point so that we have at least enough
2: income coming in or ROI coming in to make that loan. Is it, is there ever any other drivers of why they would, um, you know, impose those those fees to, to, to drive the rate down, or is this always like an, a major indicator of why you would do that? Um, so this,
0: so so right now, this is that's the main driver of all yeah. of that. Now, they also look at then default rates, right? Because if you make a loan and there's a high percentage or a high probability that that loan is going to default, that's again where discount points come in. So when you see lower credit scores or you see where certainly you're pushing a certain debt to income ratio, you're, you're going over these lines that they draw, your chance of, or your, the stats are gonna show your chance of default on that loan are higher, they're mm-hmm. greater. So again, if that loan is gonna go into default or if that loan's not gonna be around for the long term, what do we do up front to make sure that we get some money, some ROI? It's, we do the discount points. So that's another spot that you'll see it is the whole risk tolerance, the risk level on there. They'll grab it up front.
2: And then, I mean, even, you know, it seems like over the past few months, uh, arms have been making a big swing back. Are they still? like Are you you still seeing that now, even Um, past month, past few weeks? Yeah. I mean, to be honest
0: with you, not as much as I thought. Okay. Like I thought, okay, 30-year fixed rates, they hit 6%. I thought it was going to be like we're going to be doing half of our loans are going to be arms. Yep. Not the
1: case. Okay. What was the uh, that fancy marketing term that was being used? For oh, them? the hi- the hybrid fixed. Ah, that's right. Hybrid. <laughs> they're not fixed. called arms. In. They're not called arms anymore. We don't they're, call them. They're a hybrid fixed. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we didn't have a text question. <laughs> Jonathan up <and> loves it. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's. I'm like, is hybrid fixed because it's raiders? Because like grandma's helping out financing this? Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> <yeah, right?
1: laughs> it's gets fixed for some of the loan. Yeah. Um. We did have a text question come in and if you've had text question for us and want to potentially win some Saints tickets, best question of the morning is going to win those. 763-443-5664 for your text questions. That's 763-443-5664 or you can call in 651-647-2910 to call in and potentially win those Saints tickets. That's 651-647-2910. Andy asks, in regards to jumbo loans, what amount is the reserve requirement for a jumbo loan? So
0: that's a great question.
1: Um, Each investor
0: will have different reserve requirements, and it also depends on how much you have down. So, for example, um, Chase guidelines. I know Chase guidelines because I just looked this up for a client yesterday. Same question. Um, So with Chase, if you have 10% down, you need 18 months worth of reserves. So if your housing payment... Is going to be six thousand a month, six so six thousand times eighteen, whatever that number is. What is that? I don't know, fifty-four maybe, ninety-eight. Oh, that high. So six thousand times so I think ninety-eight thousand. So you need ninety-eight thousand dollars shown in your bank accounts after you've put your money down into the deal. Um, Eighteen months. If you have six thousand times eighteen. What's yeah, six thousand. So that's sixty, and then. 48? Math. Or 108. Yeah, there you go. Sorry, 108. Yeah. <laughs> you got there. <laughs> Numbers are hard for me, so that's why I got into mortgages, Evan. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, because the computer does all the calculations <laughs> right? You. Right. So, so again, I have 108, then, <clears throat> in that scenario. Now, if you have anywhere between uh, 10% down and 20% down, now that goes down to 12%. If you have 20% or more down, that goes down to six months. So, 18 months reserves, and then 12 months reserves, and then six months reserves. <clears throat> is what they require um, on the chase. I think each again each investor is different, so they might have different buckets, different amounts there. But in general, the more you have down, the less reserves you need, and the less
2: down, the more reserves you need. So that's a good question, though. So is is there a strategy there where some people will um, you know the timing of their current house selling? Like like in our case, you know, we closed on our on the house that we were in back in April, so you know we had all those funds on hand then to help the reserves. Is that? What if somebody was um, timing the change from their current house to the new house, like they're closed on the same day? Like, is there any factor of that? Um, so so a house that is not sold
0: can't be used as reserves. But yeah. if you're going to sell it on the same day, typically what happens is you're taking the f- the proceeds from that sale and you're True. applying it towards this one over here. So that can be used towards your cash to close and all that stuff. Um, and it actually can be used as reserves as long as it closes before you close on your yep. loan on the next house. Um, other things that can cover reserves. So retirement accounts can cover reserves, typically. Um, you can only use 60% of what's in your retirement accounts, though, because if you had to liquidate in order to make a payment or something like that, you're paying tax penalties and this and that. And so that's why they use 60% of retirement funds. Um, but you can use those for reserves. Um so there's a couple of different ways to skin that cat. Yeah. But that's a good question. And we, if you have other questions, phone lines are open. 763-443. That's no, that's a text, text question. Line. Text line is 763-443-5664. And uh, the phone line six five one six four seven two
1: nine one zero. 651-647-2910. There you go. We did have one more text question coming. Uh, Jason asks, is it leg day? Is it leg day? <laughs> <laughs> always, leg day. Man, always leg day it's always like it's always
0: like day is that jason Walgrave? of course it is I mean, yes of course it is yeah. you know what's funny i had a i had a client that would uh do you remember the uh the um the mystery client that would always text in back when we were in the other studio he yeah. always asked those questions yeah and we never knew who it was and then finally after a couple years of him texting in and like almost every saturday asking if it's leg day he finally texts me out of the blue he's like hey that's me texting in the whole time <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was me the whole time. <laughs>
0: yeah. Michael Lindner is his name. Cool guy. Great guy. Great. Um, so let's switch gears here. Let's uh let's bring it over to Jonathan Walgrave here with ICS Tax. We're gonna talk about short term versus long term rentals. So yep. again, the the great uh the great benefit of having you in here is you've lived you've lived the long term rental thing personally, yep. and your business is highly based around short term rentals. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's definitely
2: evolved into that. Yeah, for the past couple of years, for sure.
0: So, so I we get a lot of questions now of well, which route do we go? Mm-hmm. Do we do the long term rental thing? Do we do the short term rental thing? You know, we can talk about differences in qualifying and all that fun stuff. But I'm kind of kind of turn it over to you. I know you got a list there uh, to talk about of the
2: pros and cons of each. Yep. Yeah. So I I kind of generated you know a list of things that. You know, sometimes on the for the long term rental side, it would be you know personal experiences. I have had long term rental property since you know, probably 2012 or 2013, um, but since um, probably like I said around that COVID time, um, short term vacation rentals, Airbnbs, Verbos ha- have just been exploding, and and they're definitely a type of property that anyone in our industry that does you know tax consulting regarding fixed assets on these real estate properties. Um, you know, before that time we would have never, never really looked at them just, you know, largely for, they were not as prevalent and their cost was just so cheap that there just wasn't an ROI for, you know, someone of our expertise to come in and analyze those properties. But now, you know, the last couple of years, I can't think of really a time where we're not working on one. Um, they are all over the place. Um, people are sweeping these things up in, in, you know, vacation-y spots, Florida, Phoenix, um, California has kind of been, you know, dropping down lately. But then there's even um, a place, um, Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. You ever been there? Nope. <laughs> it's, it's supposedly a, a great tourist area. Um, and I, I'm i going to be going back there for the third time. Um, just people are, and, and in this case, these are cabins that are built up in the mountains. I mean, gorgeous views um you know people are buying these things for it 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 was a a couple years ago like a million million two and now they're going for two million dollars and these things are you know generally got capacities of you know 12 to 16 people you know they're like eight bedroom nine bath places some of them have two kitchens or the kitchens just mirrored basement pools theater rooms um it it largely intended for people to be coming in and they're you know they're they're renting these things for a week with their their entire family vacation and then they're going there's like just a whole bunch of attractions and rides and things to go to. Um, so like random areas like that are hitting up on the map. Um, even in uh, Las Vegas, just south of the strip, um, Las Vegas slash Henderson's there. Um, those have gone there now at least three or four times to see three or four at a time. Um, you know, might be for one or two or multiple clients at a time, but um, they're starting to, you know, generate a demand even there where people – if, uh, you know, let's say companies are going out on uh, having like a retreat or something and some of the executive leaders may elect to stay on an offsite house rather than somewhere, you know, in a typical, you know, Bellagio or something yeah. um, and have their private meetings, you know, at that residence. So they are definitely something that has been a game changer for how people are investing in properties. Um,
0: Do you think that shift is more of, because there's, other tax benefits that come along with that, or do you think the shift to doing more short-term rental stuff was because the technology to be able to find them, book them, manage them, things like that, has gotten that much
2: better? I definitely say it's the latter. Um, there's there's a few things we can we can touch on later in regarding like you know tax benefits between short and long term. Um, some of those rules are kind of obscure, um, but otherwise, it, it, I think it's people are now able to. Find these things and see them, and just you know, even even unrelated to this, but just like uh, Turo, you've heard of Turo, yeah. So it's the same thing, people are now renting their own cars. So yeah, um, you know, technology is helping this stuff become more accessible. But then also, uh, what has really exploded too with you know COVID pandemic, um, hotels and hospitality, uh, people in general when they're traveling, they've been less inclined to stay at a place that has people in it. And if they're renting in a short term rental, they're getting a place to themselves, I suppose, yeah, and so people are finding that just more private i mean I don't know, I almost feel like COVID's going to generate a bunch of introverts you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> people are people are done staying at staying at big hotels, but you know who who knows there's whenever I travel, I do stay predominantly at hotels, and they are starting to fill back up um but yeah for these for these uh, short term rentals, it's definitely a place um that's given people an option for just having their own space. Um, and then also, you know, now what's happened, there's, uh, this has been called the, I forget how they exactly coined it, but it's like the the summer travel of revenge is how some articles have said it. And that's basically people that have been cooped up for the past couple of years, not able to travel. They, regardless of the cost, they're going to travel and they're going to spend whatever to get that, you know, itch for vacation. Um, and these short-term vacation rentals are exactly where people are sweeping this stuff up. And the crazy thing is too, is,
0: I mean, I literally see them everywhere. Mm-hmm. We went out to Grandma's ninetieth um, birthday party out in South Dakota, and this was probably five miles um, west of Yankton. If anyone knows where Yankton, <laughs> South Dakota, is, five miles west, there's like a there's a um, there's a uh, lake there where it's basically a, it's 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 a river that they dammed right and kind of made a lake, so it's part of the river, but it's you know it's got a lake name. I can't remember what it was, but there's literally VRBOs on this one strip that it's not even on the lake it just overlooks it you'd have to go you know you have to drive down ways and get down there to get to the lake um but you're vrbo in the middle of nowhere south dakota at this thing yeah that's where we found it and so we went out there and that's where we had grandma's 90th birthday party and so it's it's just crazy like how these things pop up all over the place and they probably have that thing they probably have it rented out you know in the summertime probably three
2: out of four weeks i would imagine yep absolutely yeah so some of the things that we can, yeah, we can kind of talk about too is so I've actually, even though I've had a long-term rental property now for whatever it's been eight or nine years, we've been thinking about somewhere landing a short-term rental property, um, and so I basically kind of you know have a bunch of pros and cons for each or you know major categories to consider. Um, these are things that are going through my mind, or things that I'm actually seeing in our clients, or seeing which ones who are you know making a shift to short-term rental and kind of just. Digesting why they did that, or you know, wh- where are they getting the benefit of that versus long term? So, yeah, um, we can just start cruising through some of those. Um, you know, I think one of the the, the the predominant things right off the bat is what makes something short term or long term. Um, I think there's a what I'm going to call a realistic definition, and then there's an IRS definition. Um, you know, realistic, if we're looking at anything long term, uh, it's anything that's leased for more than a month. But in, in all reality, it's, it's 12 months. I mean, if, if anybody's renting something, you're generally doing at least a 12-month lease. Um, you know, sometimes you'll get people at 24 or they'll keep renewing at one year increments or they might go month to month after their first year. Anything on a short-term rental is something that you're uh, getting for days, weekends, weeks, maybe two weeks, but generally not much more than a month. And even a month is kind of considered pretty long if you were to land in a short term. So that's realistic. Is kind of looking at stuff on a year basis versus a you know day or week basis. Um, the way the IRS looks at it is under what's called transient use rules, and that's pretty much a thirty day cutoff. And so if you own a property and you're renting it for, if it's you know predominant use is rented less than thirty days at a time, then you're in a short term rental. If you're leasing it for more than thirty days at a time, then you land in the long term, um, so that pretty much you know separates those definitions um, The next thing you 're really thinking about is is what type of people are going to be in here uh, when you 're in a long term, you are pre screening tenants you 're doing background checks at the end of the day you you know you might be showing your unit you 're going to have i mean every every, every time i 've renewed i 've had at least a dozen people to pick from couples individuals, whatever. Um, and at, you know, you're, you're able to negotiate with each person kind of individually, Hey, you know, how long are you willing to, you know, sign a lease for? Like I will sometimes pick, in my case, I've always picked people that would do 24 months just so I'm, this thing kind of goes on autopilot for, you know, a while. Yep. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm selecting who's in there right? or have some control of that selection, uh, to where in a short-term rental, uh, you kind of have your own kind of hotel out there and whoever can click on it and pay for it uses it is who goes in there um so you do have less control over that you know over who's using your property versus a long-term rental um the long-term you know yeah can basically have less turnover in that regard just from the people that you're dealing with uh that are going in and out of your place um other things with those actual you know the people in your places think about somebody that's in a long-term rental and the people that are using your property are going to treat that place like home. It's generally furnished by their own, um, you know, couches, smallwares, you know, bedding, any of that stuff. You're generally giving them the structure. When you're in a short term, people aren't traveling and bringing their beds, so, <laughs> so you, you you are also adding to that cost or that responsibility that you are providing a fully furnished place. Now, it's also always hit or miss when you get into some of these places, do they have toiletries in there or not? You know, sometimes you there's a lot of people that, you know, they'll check into a short-term rental and, hey, we got to make a target run because there's no towels or there's, you know, no no toilet paper, paper towels. But you're going to have couches, you know, silverware, things to, you know, to use and, and live in that place. And so a lot of the stuff that you may only need to get are consumables. But that's... You know, kind of a difference there in just how the place is treated too. I mean, if you're in a short term, it's kind of people that are gonna treat this like a hotel. They probably don't care as much about what's going on in the place. They're just, hey, I'm gonna use this place, hopefully I don't get no damages or anything. I'm in and out of here in a week. Um, a long term rental property, generally you're gonna find people are gonna to to take more care of it. Um, because it's it's home to them. Yep. Um what other things I have note on that. Um I guess the other thing too is, you know, so a reason why we're also considering a short term somewhere is uh, the personal use chances of it, you know, if we were to get something down in Phoenix, for example, we can, you know, if 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 you're an owner of a short-term rental property, you can block that thing off for a certain amount of period and say, hey, we're going to go down and use this um, for vacation or friends and family or you know whoever wants to use it. To where in the long term, I I never think about. Let's go. <laughs> like st- that's somewhere <laughs> <let's> go- <laughs> I want to say uh, between <laughs> yeah. tenants here. Yeah. Let's go down there and <laughs> hang out for a couple right. Of weeks. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just so there's. That can be a driver for somebody. It should be something to be thought about as, you know, there could be a short-term benefit of if you land a property in a place, even if it's on a, you know, uh, a, a lake somewhere. doesn't need to be somewhere in warm weather. It could be, you know, Minnesota up north somewhere in a lake if it's not a restricted area um, to have short-term rentals where, yeah, you can take advantage of, you know, taking your family there or using it on certain weekends and blocking it off.
0: Um, Management-wise, um, do you see people trying to manage short-term rentals on their own or do they typically
2: hire like a management company that will run the thing so i would say we we're seeing both and the ones the only ones that i'm really seeing them manage on their own are those that are also pushing to become qualified real estate professionals so these are you know one of our biggest um, clients that has been just sweeping up short-terms he has now um, you know he's, he's like a full-time attorney, but he's been managing all of these properties. And so this guy keeps forwarding all of the you know, his people that are managing for us to do the analysis on a project. He's become a big source of work as well. But this guy now is being able to say for tax purposes that he's got you know the 750-hour requirement, that he's an active real estate person so that he's able to take his tax depreciation and losses on that property against his personal W-2 attorney income. Uh, as well. So it, it, that's a pretty big commitment that he's doing. He's probably, you know, working pretty long hours. But yeah. um, a lot of these people will you will be directly conversing with the owner. So they will manage like the actual um, you know, bookings or request. Um, but then when it comes down to somebody who's performing maintenance, routine maintenance or fixing errors or doing the cleaning, that person is uh, a, often a hired third party. Um, and so sometimes these people, you know, obviously may not even be where this property is. They could be, you know, states away. Um, but when you're booking, you're conversing with that person.
0: Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking like, you know, the the short term rentals. How many people have a short term rental where they actually like live close enough to where they could do the cleaning or they could do the checkouts and the check in? They could do that type of stuff. I imagine rare, that probably doesn't rare. happen rare, a yeah. whole lot. Yep. But on the long term rental side. That probably happens a lot more, right? You're typically Correct. buying long-term rentals around you so that it's something yep. that you can go to and you can probably help maintain and things like that. But the short-term rentals just seems like classic yep. example. You live in Minnesota, you got one down in Florida or Arizona. Yep. I mean, you're not going down there to you know, yeah. check, check people in yep. and out and stuff yep. like that. Got to so. change
2: the furnace filter. Got to fly down in Florida for a little. <laughs>
0: <time>. <laughs> now going now going to that now. If you want to try to be the qualified real estate professional, because there's additional tax benefits that come along if you can meet that requirement, so we might have to dig into that a little bit more. But, I mean, so let's say I have one down in Florida, right? I got a short term down in Florida, and I go down there on uh, every other week. So I fly down there every other week just to check on the property and do that type of stuff, right? So... The only reason why I'm going down there, right, quote, unquote, mm-hmm. the only reason why I'm going down there is so I can maintain my short-term rental. Yep. So the time that I leave my front doorstep to the time that I reach my front doorstep back here in Minnesota, can all of that time go towards that 750
2: hours? Because- so Yeah, so, th- so those type of things, like, like what can hours can you can or not include, that's yeah. going to vary by CPA and, and who's willing to sign off on that. Okay. Because um, there's, there's going to be some out there that are going to say travel time doesn't count. Um, but then there's going to be others to be like, nope, as soon as, yeah, you're, you're doorway to doorway, yeah. um, you know, on your hours with that. So, but at the end of the day too, it's, it, it generally, we don't see people that are like barely making the cutoff. It's either they're, they're like hitting it, crushing it, or they're not even close. Gotcha. So sometimes you're not even really getting down to the travel aspect of that, but so
0: so when you guys talk to clients like that is is do you let them make the decision of you can count those if you want to and it's kind of on you if the irs comes a knock and it's on you to
2: defend yeah, if you it's, will it's in 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 our industry it's it's actually a, a area that we don't actually will even touch just because it's tax preparer related whoever signs off on the return is the person that needs to have that comfort level gotcha so do they have an aggressive cpa or conservative cpa um we're giving them basically the depreciation results or the answers of you know how this property produces for them whether the CPA is able to you know push that into hey you're going to not just offset your passive income but also get into your personal w2 income yeah that's what they're willing to sign off on interesting yeah so we sometimes have to you know the extent of our you know thoughts on that is pitching the benefit i mean if 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 a property's only going to have passive income or losses then what we may find or accelerate in depreciation on a property may be limited to someone's benefit, you know, by that passive amount. And so then it just end up, you know, creating big losses that carry forward for years. So if someone is limited to just the passive income and losses on a property, they may not have to pay tax on it for five, six, seven, eight years, because what we find in doing a cost segregation analysis extends it that long Yeah. to where interesting. Um, if someone's, you know, actually a qualified real estate professional, they can, and have a big w2 income for example they can burn through all, through all in one year. So, interesting.
0: Phone lines are open uh, seven, uh excuse me 651 647 2910. Evan look at Evan look at give me the dust like, <laughs> <laughs> You
1: gonna mess during the show. <laughs> I will be very very unhappy.
0: <laughs> Call in line 651 647 2910. Text line is 763 763- 443-5664. Uh, any questions uh, for, for Mr. Jonathan Walgrave here on the short-term versus long-term rental stuff, uh, any mortgage or real estate questions uh, are welcome. Again, that call in line is 651-647-2910. And the text line is 763-443-5664. Um, still have those Saints tickets to give away? Yep. So we've got four Saints tickets to give away to the best question of the morning here. Calling in or texting in um, gets you in the running for those tickets. And Your... we did
1: have a text question come in too. Perfect. Uh, Alonzo had a uh, financing question for us. Um, he has about $200,000 in equity in his house right now and they'd like to tap into it. Probably about fifty grand worth. Uh, pay down some debt, do some house improvements, etc. Um, they currently have an interest rate on their main loan of 3.25% and they're wondering what the best option is. Should they refi? Should they get a HELOC, etc.?
0: Very tough to give up a three point two five percent interest rate, right? So if you did a cash out refinance, you 'd be sitting up there in the low sixes as far as a 30 year fix goes. So do you want to trade you know your your entire loan amount at a three point two five for let's say even a six point two five probably not you're probably better off adding a second mortgage to the mix in this case, whether it's a home equity line of credit where the rate is variable. Or you can do a fixed second um, second mortgage where the rate is fixed, that's going to be um, usually shorter term. They're usually like 15 to 20 years is the max fixed term that you can get on a second. That interest rate might be a little bit higher on that fixed rate, but at least the rate's not variable then too. So if it's one of those things where you want the flexibility of a line of credits, like we want it available, we just don't know what we're going to do with it yet, yeah. maybe go with a line of credit because then you can draw from it and pay it down as you wish um if you're like yep we're going to need the 50 let's do it right now and we don't want any interest rate you know um fluctuations and things we're just you know we just want to know what we're going to get and be able to bank on that then just do a fixed rate second pull that money out it's a good question though we get a lot of those questions now it's kind of like what do we do do we trade do we trade our three two five for something else is that the better play you know because second second mortgages so it's any sort of loan that's you know, in second lien position on your house, there's more risk there, so they have higher interest rates with them. You know, and so then you got to outweigh. It's like, do we do the whole thing? Do we just add this on there? And in this particular case, fifty thousand dollars, do a second mortgage all day long. I agree.
2: How about how about just getting uh, you know qualified for like you know HELOCs there? Let's say somebody's been in a property for ten years there, three point two five percent. It's like clearly worth way more than the loan is. Mm-hmm. Is that appraisal process? Streamline now for those situations
0: um if you're if you're not trying to max it out, so typically home equity Lands of credit will let you go up to ninety percent of yep. whatever the house is going to appraise for, so take your appraisal value times ninety percent minus out your first mortgage balance, and that's the amount of second mortgage that you can get if you're going up to there, they're probably going to require an appraisal if you're only going to go up to eighty percent. They're just probably just going to do like an automatic valuation model, is what it's called, an AVM. So online appraisal, something like that, yep. almost as like a Zillow type of deal, where it's like, you know, what's your house worth at uh, four fifty? <laughs> kind of go online. Yeah, online kind of says it's pretty close to four fifty two. We'll take it yeah. and go. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because yep. as long as you're not maxing it out, the the risk there is pretty low. So yep. yeah, they won't even make you get an appraisal in most cases there. But if you do want to go up to the max, up to the ninety, they're probably going to have you do an appraisal on it. Okay. So, but appraisals—I mean, appraisals are one of those things where people are su- surprised at how high the appraisals are still coming in at. I had one client literally that um, appraisal just came in two days ago. Um, I said, "Well, what do you think the house is going to be worth?" And they're like, uh eh, it's probably you know three seventy-five to three ninety, maybe four hundred tops." Came in at four seventy-one. Wow! In a house in Bloomington, and they're like, "Really?" I'm like. So when it came in, at you know, and they saw the comparables that they used, and everything was on there, and it's obviously from a licensed real estate appraiser. Uh, it came in at four seventy one, <laughs> you know, and they were thinking three seventy five to three ninety. Yeah, you know, so crazy. Well, I mean, even your house. So you sold your house as part of the whole building the new house thing. Because mm-hmm. um, weren't we talking? Wasn't it? Wasn't it uh, March of twenty twenty? It was going to sell at a certain amount and you waited until March of 2021.
2: So you waited yeah, a year. We were, we were thinking like 385 to 400, it would sell for. And then, yeah. And, and then turn of the next year came and we we're like, man, maybe this will go for 425 and ended up going for four. We were like 473. Yeah. Um. And then actually after we met the buyer, he was, he thought he was in his mind, he goes, I would have went to five. He's like, I got, I got a screaming deal on this tour. We were just like over 425. Like what? This is like, the smallest house in the block, and um, and then we actually found out from him too uh, that his appraisal came in in uh, in the four sixties. So he didn't even you know because one of his guarantees in, in his offer was that he would be able to financially cover that gap if the house only appraised for four twenty five. But you know he needs whatever you know to cover the four seventy. Um, but he ended up appraising almost right up to what he offered. So yeah, it's, it was just wild. We didn't see that coming. But
0: so we did. See, we saw a lot of that here too. It's like. You know, the whole, the whole new construction was huge. So, I mean, build all builders had record sales in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, 2020, I should say 2020, they had record sales. Now, having record closings was not the case because build cycles took longer, right? Because we had the whole supply chain stuff and labor stuff going on. So they sold more houses in, in that year than they could really build just because of the supply chain through COVID and stuff. And so... Um, a lot of people were hanging on to their house, right, a little bit longer. Well, we saw what happened in 2020, even going into 2021, home prices kept on going up. So now you're making an extra 50, 75. Sometimes people were making an extra 100 grand by waiting 12 months to
2: sell their existing house. That actually came in a little bit to our, um, I guess, easement of, you know, rates going up is when we were getting into this new house going, you know what, we... We made probably an extra seventy five hundred grand on our house that we sold that we shouldn't have that we didn't expect that yeah so we might be paying another seventy five hundred grand in interest rates in the new one but it came out in the wash yeah so you gain you gain it on one end and
0: lose it on the other yeah. we saw that a lot is because you know especially if you are doing a custom build um, the chances of you hitting your number hitting your initial estimate on a custom yeah. build are almost zero yeah <laughs> to be honest with you yeah. we built our home custom with Pebble Creek I know you did a custom home build yeah um. You're not hitting that initial number. There's right, just right, no way. Right. Um, and so that's nice because you were able to make it up. You lost on we lost on that side of things, yep. but you g- gained. You know, you gained that and more on the sale of your house. And we saw a lot, a lot of that coming up here. You know, with new construction. We had yeah. a couple of
1: so, uh, text questions come in here. Uh, if you've got a text question for the show, best question of the morning is going to win four St. Saint Paul Saints tickets. Text line is seven six three four four three. Five, six, six, four, that's seven, six three, four, four three, five, six, six, four, or if you want to call in, we've got about 10 minutes left in the show. six, five one, six four seven, two nine one zero is the call-in number. Uh, we've got a question here from Andy. How does depreciation work on short- term and long- term rentals?
2: Love it. Um, I'll actually probably tee that up too to get into some really exotic tax differences between these two that you can't google anywhere um so when it comes to the two properties whether you're buying um short-term or long-term there's really not much depreciation differences or benefits either way like there's there's nothing that you're going to you're not going to make a decision on how you're going to use this property based on its its actual tax depreciation benefits so in 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 essence what what we do as a cost irrigation services um and i'll just i'll keep it simple for high level things you know let's say someone's buying a Five hundred thousand dollar property. Um, we're we're coming through that and identifying um, first a land value uh, to carve out because it's not depreciable. But then we're going through and looking at things that are removable, reusable equipment in nature. Um, you know things that you know might have any form of direct IRS guidance that allows them to be shorter property or shorter life property. So if you did nothing and you went out and, and you know uh, acquired a property you would generally be depreciating that over 39 years. So picture then every year, you're essentially getting 1 39th of that basis that you get to deduct against your income on that property. We'll come through in anything that we can carve out that is eligible for shorter life, you know, say it's landing in five, seven or 15 year um, buckets, which are generally personal property or land improvement type buckets. So, you know, paving, landscaping, um, you know, concrete sidewalks, aprons are things that would get like a 15-year tax life. Things that would be five-year would be your, you know, luxury vinyl flooring, carpet, um, you know, your kitchen cabinetry, countertops, sinks, um, uh, kitchen sinks, um, you know, laundry hookups, electrical for anything that's like TV, low voltage. Any of those items that we're carving out and assigning value to will get a shorter life of, uh, you know, generally five years. So if we're Carving, you know, say twenty percent of uh, of a basis into that shorter life than anything that's in those five, seven, or fifteen year lives right now. Still through the rest of twenty twenty two, get a hundred percent bonus, so you get a full deduction or full write off on that. So, you know, we find one hundred thousand dollars on a five hundred thousand dollar property. You're deducting a hundred thousand dollars in year one versus one thirty ninth of five hundred, yeah, which is a lot smaller number, right? So, the where this stuff gets a little different between the two is. I guess I'm going to probably call it obscure rule. And that's this going back. I mentioned earlier about transient use and transient use with, you know, how the IRS is identifying something being residential property or, or not is uh, based on that 30 days or that one month. So if somebody is in a long-term rental and it's rented for more than 30 days, which, you know, in, in, in the reality, you're, you're leasing these things for 12 months at a time. They get actually a twenty seven and a half year life not a thirty nine year short term rentals being uh you know generally used for days weeks you know anything less than a month are actually not considered in IRS terms residential property they're commercial oh interesting so, because in order to be residential you have to pass the definitions of it, which are the use and you know eighty percent from residential rental income so these short terms then will get the 39 year life, which is what, you know, most properties that we're doing are 39 year life. Um, it's, it's the, I'm saying in general for cost seg, you know, commercial retail, all those things are going to end up uh, with a 39 year life. So when it comes to apartments, uh, single family homes, duplexes, any of those things, they generally get the twenty seven and a half unless they're used for short term. Then they are 39, Thirty nine. Interesting. So where some exotic stuff get in is actually Jason Walgrave and I were having this conversation, um, just a few weeks ago on the, that place that they're building on Prior Lake or that they bought. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a rule out there, a classification of property, called Qualified Improvement Property. Um, this you know, stemmed a few years back. Uh, essentially what it is is anybody that performs improvements to a property that is interior in nature, non-structural, doesn't enlarge the building, and doesn't involve things like elevators or escalators, gets a special 15 year life. And so that can include, you know, generally otherwise structural items. Like, I mean, let's say you're adding new partitions, new walls, things that don't get a shorter tax life, they can still fall under this Qualified Improvement Property bucket and get a 15 year life. Hmm. And anything less than 20 years, gets the 100% bonus right now, so it's like a full write-off. Yeah. Well, Qualified Improvement Property, or what we call QIP, is not eligible for rental properties. So we'll have people right now that are really following the letter of the law and exploiting the benefit here. And they will, if they're buying a rental property that they know is going to need a bunch of improvements right away, they will, and they plan on using it for long-term For in, in that first year at, after they're you know buying the property and performing these improvements, they will actually list it and treat it as a short-term rental property so that they are writing off Via you know qualified improvement property hundred percent bonus all the improvements are putting on in this place, and then at the turn of the year the next year comes and they'll non, now no longer list as short term rental they'll turn it into long term, but now they already wrote off all the basis they put into it you know because some yeah. people are buying they may buy a property for five hundred grand they're probably putting two hundred fifty thousand into it that we're seeing wow. people are people yeah. are buying like you know dilapidated houses and hey let's pump this thing up and get it all ready to go um, and if they did that entirely as a long term. They might only be able to deduct twenty percent of that, two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, versus they're writing off uh, all of it by treating this thing as a short-term rental, so that they can get the qualified improvement benefit. Right. Do you think the IRS, it's it's will, like
0: catch on to this and
2: change that rule? Or is so that's... so far we're not. I mean, so our group, you know, ICS Tax, we are part of a national um, association of cost segregation professionals, the ASCSP. Um, we've actually brought this up on a massive scale um, with them. It's actually one of our relationships where uh, a client of ours acquired an entire casino. We're talking somewhere in Nevada, and they're converting this thing from hotel casino hotels to apartments and commercials. So they're going to put in you know gyms, fitness centers, caribous, you know Starbucks type stuff on the first two floors that used to be casino, gaming floors. Yeah. and then everything above it is going to be now converted to apartments in in that case, while this is going on, their first, you know, year of or year two of construction, they're watching to make sure that um, they're not getting more than eighty percent of their income from residential rentals or these new apartments that they're putting in. So they're keeping this building as commercial. So they're in that and thats scale we're talking about these guys writing off two hundred and fifty million in improvements yeah. on this thing under you know these rules. So Following a letter of the law, and the IRS, I don't, I don't think, is really going to see it yet or, yeah. or have any concern. It's it's the rules. So the, you're basically passing a property as short term rental and then you convert it into long term. There's gotcha. nothing against that. Sometimes. We do
1: have another text question come in here. If you got a text question for the show, 763 443 5664 is the text in line. 763 443 5664. Friend of the show, Big Biggie. Texted in. He wants to know what kind of financing options are there for short-term and long-term rentals if it's an LLC, not a second home? How much down payment rates, et cetera? So on the financing side of things, um, there's really no difference
0: between short-term and long-term rental. Um as far as being able to use the rental income, that's where it comes into play. So if you're going to buy an investment property in 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 a standard conventional loan, investment property is one of those properties that you're going to rent out. You can use rental income from that subject property that you're going to buy, and the amount you can use is 75% of whatever the long-term rental is. Because short-term rentals is... What's your weekly rate going to be or your nightly rate going to be? Are you going to have it rented out for one week a month, two weeks a month? You don't you, you don't know, right? It's too unpredictable as to far as what you're going to consistently get in. And when mortgages, on the mortgage side of things, it's your monthly in versus your monthly out. As long as your debt-to-income ratio between those two is fine, you can qualify. So if you need that rental income on that property, they're just going to look at long-term rental. If you were going to rent this out long-term-wise, what's the market rents for this type of property? You can use 75% of that number, and the appraiser appraiser does that for you on the appraisal to say market rents for this single-family home in this area goes for this. We can use 75% of that to qualify, and then whether you make it a long-term or short-term is up to you after that. If you don't need the rental income to qualify because you make enough you know income from your regular job and you don't need it, then you don't need it. Then it doesn't matter at that point. Yeah. Um, if you're financing an LLC, so if you, that's your personal name, so if you're going to finance in the name of LLC, now you're not you're not getting a 30 year fixed or anything like that because you can't do a standard conventional loan. So now you're getting a you know seven year arm or a 10 year arm, might be a 20 or 25 year term, something like that because you're financing the name of LLC and not in the name of a natural
2: person. Yeah,
0: that's a good question though.
1: It's a great question.
0: It's a great question because a lot of find there's a lot of differences as far as LLC versus personal, you know short term versus long term, all that fun stuff there. So that's a whole nother that's a whole nother discussion we can have next week there. But we appreciate everyone listening here. We're here every Saturday from seven to eight AM here on ESPN radio. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend This has been a paid program. Views expressed were not necessarily those of the management or ownership of KSTPAM 1500 ESPN.